This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Ian Smith. In this month's edition, the focus is firmly on biodiversity and agriculture. First up, we'll be talking to IFAD's biodiversity lead, René Ankafjard, about the new biodiversity strategy putting sustainable agriculture at the heart of IFAD's operations. We'll also be hearing from IFAD projects that mainstream biodiversity conservation in Eswatini, Haiti and Turkey. After that, we talk to the people behind the PACE project in Bangladesh, where the agroecological farming initiative is reaping rewards. Plus, we'll be taking a deep dive into yak wool production. Then we have news of how artificial intelligence is making its way into the farmyard with Seeker Technologies. Plus, we're proud to welcome a new chef to IFAD's Recipes for Change program, Chef Rob Ruber from Washington, D.C. Ian will be talking to him later in the program. And it's the UN's Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples' Issues. We find out with Miguel Turan more about why free, prior and informed consent is where it's at. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at efad.org. And you can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Ian Smith, and with me is Brian Thompson. Nearly 80% of the world's poor live in rural areas and rely heavily on well-kept biodiversity for food security, nutrition, and employment. Despite standing to suffer immensely from the decline of biodiversity, agriculture is the lead driver of biodiversity loss, primarily through the forced conversion and fragmentation of habitats and unsustainable intensification. Food system transformation is required to protect biodiversity and ensure the resilience of food systems in the face of climate change. IFAD invests in projects that promote the sustainable use and conservation of biodiversity and other natural resources. As part of that, a new biodiversity strategy is being taken on by IFAD. This includes a promise that 30% of climate finance will go towards nature-based solutions by 2030. It also intends to set a framework that will mainstream biodiversity throughout IFAD's operations and investments. I asked René Ankafjad what will be involved. So IFAD intends to create more opportunities to pilot and demonstrate novel solutions in using biodiversity and nature-friendly agricultural practices and approaches, and also to develop markets and policies for biodiversity. So this, this could also include developing and testing financial tools and instruments in the context of small-scale farmers, as well as finding uh, models for private sector collaboration, diverse market approaches, and biodiverse value chains. Um, we also believe that IFAD can add value to investments in biodiversity by building strategic partnerships for increased reach, impact, and leveraging or for developing tools and methods uh, and engaging in policy dialogue. So by enhancing collaborations globally, regionally, and nationally with other, for example, UN organizations with development 
financial institutions, research NGOs and other organizations that have complementary mandates, expertise and resources. This will help us to better address the wide range of needs of small scale farmers and other rural poor. So we have uh, great hopes for this, uh, this strategy and, and what it might uh, bring for benefits for, for uh, our target groups and also for nature. So you, you talk about those those great hopes, Rene. What what are you expecting looking to the future with this in place, with people working to this new biodiversity rhythm in IFAD? What are we hoping for? Uh, well, the goal of the strategy is to enhance IFAD's ability to support countries to protect, restore, and promote biodiversity and its sustainable use in rural system. And in order to ensure multiple benefits for both nature and the livelihoods of rural people. So we need to combine these two. And this means that governments and small-scale farmers, pastoralists, fisher folks, and indigenous peoples and other local communities uh, are supported to conserve and sustainable use biodiversity throughout EFAD's interventions. Uh, it is also important to create enabling environment for biodiversity, uh, associated with rural production and consumption systems uh, by supporting the enhancement of national, regional and international policies and development strategies. And we believe that we can play a role here in, in supporting this in, in, uh, in benefiting biodiversity. Uh, we also would like to position IFAB uh, as a recognized and well-established partner in generating and applying new knowledge and approaches for conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity in the small-scale farming systems, landscapes, and markets. And in, 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 in general, this means that we will continue to do the important work that we do to reduce poverty and hunger, but to do it better. So by working more strategically with biodiversity, we can make sure not to miss any opportunities to provide benefits for both people and nature. Um, we will also get more out of our investments in rural poor to increase the resilience and productive capacity of small-scale producers and consumers by working more strategically with biodiversity. Um, we also expect to improve access to market opportunities for biodiverse, environmentally and socially sustainable produce. Uh, lastly, with the strategy in place, uh, we also will become better at capturing results so that new knowledge in the form of lessons learned and successful approaches can be shared for a wider application. That was René Ankerfjord. Up next, we head over to Haiti to see what's happening on the ground. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Ian Smith, and with me is Brian Thompson. Haiti is the poorest country in the Latin America and Caribbean region. Among the major environmental threats that Haiti is facing are soil erosion, deforestation, and overfishing. This is being exacerbated by the climate crisis, which is causing temperatures to rise, rainfall to drop, and an increase in extreme weather events. The agroforestry sector employs 60% of the working population in Haiti. The Inclusive Blue Economy Project is located in Haiti's Three Bays Protected Area in the North and Northeast Departments. The population here is facing extreme poverty and malnutrition. 
Amongst the causes are weak governance, a lack of surveillance of the protected area, and a lack of involvement of the local population in protecting the environment. Plus, there has so far been a lack of environmentally friendly livelihood opportunities. Ifad's Mina Grossman has worked on developing this project. She explains what the project is trying to do. So the project consists of two main parts. Um, The first component is really looking at the governance and sustainable management of natural resources. So this component will help to ensure um, sustainable and inclusive management of the land, um, the coastal and marine resources of the protected area. Um, And it, it aims to do this by evaluating, updating and strengthening the regulations of the protected area as well as ensuring that local populations and actors are more involved in its actual management. And concrete activities include, for example, the updating of the protected areas management plan through participatory and inclusive processes, um, strengthening the management committee with increased participation of local communities, as well as authorities, um, the private sector, as well as state actors, and also the better surveillance of the protected area, as well as strengthening the national protection agency, both at the national and the decentralized uh, levels. Um, Then we have a second component, which is the conservation and sustainable use of ecosystems to improve and diversify the livelihoods of the local communities. So this will include um, the development of alternative livelihoods that respect the environment and biodiversity. Um, We'll also be supporting local conservation and restoration activities, such as the restoration of mangrove forests, um, coral reefs and watersheds. And we'll also be focusing on the improvement of women's nutritional status and entrepreneurship. Um, So we'll do this by diversifying food production, and also um, selecting nutrition-sensitive crops and value chains. So with with regard to the development of alternative livelihoods um, or livelihood opportunities, shall I say, um, that really conserve biodiversity, I'd like to give you a couple of examples of of what this will consist of. So in the case of fishery, Um, which is really a very important sector in this protected area and for the local populations. The types of nets that are currently being used are leading to too many juvenile fish being caught. And so this is really hindering their capacity to reproduce and resulting in a depletion of the fish stocks. So through the promotion of nets with larger holes, juveniles will not be caught enabling the regeneration of these fish populations. And we'll be working very closely with fishermen and women to ensure that they are compensated for this transition to sustainable practices and also um, compensated for the temporarily reduced catch that they will um, encounter. In addition, um, we will be supporting community-led activities Activities supporting the restoration of coral reefs and mangroves, which really provide a crucial breeding ground for fish and other aquatic species. 
Um, then a second example um, I'd like to offer is the promotion of Creole gardens and woodlots. So the local communities are currently using um, natural forests for fuel woods and other resources. And the promotion of woodlots and Creole gardens. And so what's a Creole garden? A Creole garden is a small plot of land where usually women uh, grow a wide range of foods for their families and for markets. So the promotion of these woodlots and Creole gardens will reduce the deforestation of natural habitats, such as the mangroves. Um, and this is really important because the mangroves actually provide important protection against tidal surges associated with extreme weather events, as well as um, the aforementioned breeding grounds for fish and uh, aquatic species. So in addition to this, the promotion of diversified gardens and woodlots will also include uh, indigenous crops, which are incidentally often um, higher, have higher nutritional value than commercial varieties. And these will ensure um, improved nutrition of the beneficiary communities, as well as conserving local agrobiodiversity. And this is really important as growing a wide diversity of crops means that the producers are less vulnerable if a pest or, for example, a disease attacks one of their crops, as they have multiple crops to fall back on. And in addition to this, uh, many of these indigenous um, crops are adapted to the local conditions, enabling them to resist a wide array of stresses. And these could be, for example, drought or heat, um, thus increasing communities' resilience to climate change. That was Mina Grossman. Please tune in to any of our 30 podcasts and nearly 290 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 27, we heard from IFAD Goodwill Ambassadors Idris and Sabrina Elba. In episode 28, we look to what the future holds in 2022, in all things innovative. And in episode 29, we celebrated International Women's Day with reports from gender award-winning projects across the world. Next month, in episode 31, we'll be taking a close look at social justice, specifically decent work and fair livelihoods in agriculture. Coming up now, though, we're heading off to look at river conservation and farming in Turkey. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Ian Smith. Now we turn to the Murat River Project in Turkey, which won a 2019 IFAD Gender Award and the Guinness World Record for most trees planted in an hour. To learn about biodiversity loss and the IFAD-supported solutions around the Murat River, I talked to Bernard Hein, the IFAD Country Director for Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, and Turkey. When we are designing the Murat River Rehabilitation Project, the per capita income annually was around $400 against a national average of $6,000. We are supporting government in packets of poverty, mainly in the uplands and in forest villages. Our beneficiaries, the small farmers, they were farming on small lands of two hectares against a national average of six hectares. They were making their living from livestock raising, from horticulture, 
But the population was relying so heavily on those natural resources so that the demand for timber, for fuel, for fodder increased, and this resulted in deforestation, in biodiversity degradation, in overgrazing of the rangelands. So people started farming on steep slopes without effective soil conservation practices, and this also resulted in land degradation, in erosion, sedimentations. The quality of the water was decreasing, and the runoff was increasing, resulting in flooding and landslide, which affected not only the forest villages, but even a much bigger population in the downstream. So this was our problem during the design of the project. And clearly, the villages were losing their ability to continue deriving in a sustainable manner their livelihoods from natural resources. So what are the actions taken by the project to improve the situation? So basically, we empowered the population, the communities, to do their own diagnosis, to develop accurate and dynamic picture of the situation, and to prepare village plans for the sustainable management of their natural resources and also for the improvement of their livelihood. Actions included, for example, soil protections, afforestation activities, rehabilitation of pastures lands, orchard and greenhouse investment, uh, house eating stoves. These are some actions that we undertook. And what are the results we're seeing coming through in terms of natural resources, environmental health, and livelihoods for the communities? So far, what we are seeing is that out of the 95,000 target, the outreach today is 140,000 beneficiaries. For example, the investment in house insulation and in solar heating uh, managed to reduce the pressure on forest resources and has managed to cut down by 50% the need for wood and for fuel. The budget, family budget for energy was also cut by 50%. 4,000 hectares of land were afforestated and 20,000 hectares of land benefited from erosion control activities. Soil erosion was being reduced and the hydrology in the macro catchment was being improved. The analysis also confirmed that an achievement of 30% increase in vegetation cover. The population benefited from investment in orchards, strawberry, vegetable greenhouses, and this was expanded in the three provinces and has diversified the means of living of the people and has generated substantial income to the households. And also investment targeting women allowed to save time in housework. And as a result of this, the project won the IFAD Gender Award in 2019. And to also show the effectiveness of our implementing agency, they managed to register the country in the World Guinness Book by planting over 300,000 trees in one hour. The record was held by Indonesia, and since two years, the record is now held by Turkey, thanks to OGM, our implementing entity for this project. Final question for you. So the project ends in June this year. So what are the next steps that are going to be taken? As you can see, the performance is very satisfactory. 
And we have already agreed that there is need to scale up the approach, to scale up these results to other provinces. And so right now we are working to this on this, not only with the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry, but also with the Ministry of Treasury and Finance. And we are also trying to broaden our partnership building alliances with sister international financing institutions to scale up these uh, results through maybe a second phase. That was Bernard Hein. Up next, we have news from Eswatini. You're listening to Farms Food Future. The Climate Smart Agriculture for Rural Development Project in Eswatini is an award-winning operation. Not just once, but twice, it scooped the National Biodiversity Prize at the Tembelo Climate Awards in 2020 and 2021. This is given to organizations active in Eswatini that demonstrate an exemplary commitment to conserving biodiversity. I spoke to IFAD Country Director Jana Kaitanranta and asked her about the environmental pressures being faced. Eswatini is not an exception. Uh, Eswatini has been suffering from the climate change like most of the Southern African countries. And uh, what we have particularly been observing in Eswatini has been very unpredictable rainfall and uh, long periods of drought. And um, uh, deforestation is also be, has been also a big problem and uh, because of the extraction of um, fuel wood and um, to a certain extent as well, destruction of natural habitats for other land uses and uh, inappropriate land use practices. So what, what actions have been taken by the project to improve that situation? I would say that... Um, Environmental consciousness is quite high in Eswatini, and um, if I'd funded SMLP project, we had also Jeff funded um, a complementary uh, project, and uh, these two together has been quite uh, strongly working in uh, different uh, climate issues and. Uh, Key interventions that we have had in Eswatini include uh, uh, forest rehabilitation with uh, natural uh, indigenous species. Uh, motivated by apiculture, agroforestry, uh, wetland restoration, rangeland management, conservation agriculture in general terms. And uh, we also conducted land degradation surveillance framework. And what are the results we're seeing coming through in terms of the environmental health of the region and in the change in living conditions for communities? If I, before going to the results, if I would think that uh, why this uh, climate work and biodiversity conservation has been successful in uh, Eswatini, probably more successful than some other neighbor countries, I would say that the big issues have been the very strong uh, community work that is behind. Uh, all the climate issues has been discussed uh, together in the in the community development planning meetings, and uh, uh, they start with the rangeland and the natural resource management committees, who have been a part of this uh, prioritis, prioritization of these um, uh, works that I was referring to. And uh, and another thing is the, uh, of importance is that uh, climate work has been very much uh, related to the income generation. So while in many other countries uh, uh, sometimes climate work has been given like a second priority, that's, that has not been the case in Eswatini because people are seeing uh, direct also cash flows coming from the climate work. But if I would comment to some of these um, uh, concrete results in Eswatini, uh, we have um, 
58 hectares conservation area, which is currently a home to a variety of indigenous plants and animal species. And this has uh, the maintenance of that area has been particularly popular with youth. We have a restoration and a social fencing of wetlands. We have six wet wetlands areas that are completely in, in a good shape and fenced. And uh, these are, for example, that um, women are using these areas for the wetland grass, which are sold for good prices. And um, uh, in more general uh, general level, I would say that uh, there is uh, increased awareness of climate issues in Eswatini. Community work has always been strong, but it has become even stronger. Uh, community practices has been improved. And really, like I say, that all this has been done uh, uh, together with um, with, uh, with having a, like, um, a goal of increased incomes. The project has won, um, has won an award, I believe? Yes, that, that's true. Uh, in 2020, SMLP um, in Eswatini, they won the National Tenvelo Award for their work with biodiversity conservation. And um, in 21, they won the award again. Uh, so that's uh, quite uh, uh, unusual and uh, it has really increased uh, this uh, motivation to further improve in the area of uh, climate work. That was Jana Kaitenranta and you can find out more about the project at ifad.org and search Eswatini. Coming up, we're finding out more about ecological farming in Bangladesh. This is Farms Food Future. Balancing food security with sustainability is at the heart of IFAD's work. In a world with a growing population, an ongoing pandemic, and increasing climate impacts, the push to build resilience within rural communities is at the core of our development efforts. The Promoting Agricultural Commercialization and Enterprises Project, or PACE project in Bangladesh, is promoting the growth of chemical-free vegetables as part of its agroecological farming initiative. Brian has this report. The IFAD-supported PACE project in Bangladesh is helping farmers become more adept with ecological farming methods. A mixture of loans and trainings are on offer, and the rewards aren't just for the environment. Dr Rafik Islam, the project coordinator for the PACE project, says they need to promote ecological farming to make sure food is of a better quality and at the same time protect the soil by avoiding chemical fertilisers. He told us about the situation in the past and how things are already developing for the better. They produce uh, by using low technology, produce uh, low quality and, and, and sell to the lower quality of people because they do not know the thing about the safe food. But now we uh, emphasize uh, or influence them to produce, uh, to, to, to uh, use higher technology and produce uh, safe food or uh, quality product and sell to the premier mar- premium market. So now they uh, they can uh, train uh, by our project that we they, they, that when they produce uh, in ecological farming or safe food, they will good, good price. Not only in Bangladesh, we can uh, earn money from foreign country uh, by exporting this if it is certified and uh, traceability is ensured uh, by the institution. Uh, and then, then they will g- g- gain more. And already we 
some uh, some mukbin you need you know we produce we produce mukbin and it is actually exported to japan also and uh, crab crab also we produce and we export to japan uh, china and korea also so in that way they can understand the the, the safe food or good food is producing more and then get more price uh, than uh, that before because the the chemical and chemical fertilizer and uh, insecticide actually uh, higher cost than that of natural uh, or biological control or biological fertilizer so it is also in win in that way that the the cost is less but produce safe and get premium price or get more price this is the way we we influence them it's not just higher quality product and higher prices that farmers are commanding with ecological farming they're also benefiting in the face of climate change uh, the uh, climate vulnerability also there are several coastal area and the climate uh, uh, change effect is or adverse adverse climate change adverse is also occurring in this uh, that area and uh, saline water is uh salinity is uh, intrusion in the water and uh, soil also though so that way also we produce the uh, climate uh, uh, smart um, product like crab mug bean and other sunflower and when we produce this in that way and it is it actually we we produce with uh, uh, biological uh, control or biological pest control and uh, integrated pest control and also also bio fertilizer using and uh, not to use uh, um, health hazard thing in the water and the and the soil so the this produce actually uh, for the uh, health uh, human health uh, uh, friendly production uh, so the, not only the um uh, agriculture also aquaculture and all other things also we produce in that way so ecological farming can help restore the local ecosystem looking after the main resources all farmers need that being soil and land growing a diverse variety of crops using natural manure and fertilizer soil fertility is restored with every crop cycle using only organic pest control methods this further allows farmers to avoid the use of chemicals so what does the future hold dr islam believes the focus will move to consumers and wants to see more government rewards for ecological farming yeah you know the people's awareness is increasing but we have to have uh, influence them more because uh, several people are in bangladesh you know we uh, so the internal market is huge because the large number of people is living in bangladesh so we should have to have uh, influence to consumers also not only farmers but the consumers should have to know that the that the ecological farming product is more suitable to health besides we hope that a government will provide initiatives to those who practice ecological farming methods that they will be awarded by the by the government side and we are ensuring our another project rmtp the certification traceability branding uh, of those ecological products and we say this is the ecological products and what is the ingredient what is the using uh, what is uh, the materials using uh, in the in the in the production of these products 
Thanks to Dr. Islam ending that report. Coming up, we're taking a look at the wonderful world of yak farming. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Ian Smith, and with me is Brian Thompson. Following the thread of the yak is a recently released report that is IFAD's first ever close-up analysis of yak wool production. Antonia Rotter is IFAD's senior livestock specialist. I asked him to tell me more about what the report's about. With this report, uh, IFAD intend to provide a contribution to the welfare of the traditional pastoral and agro-pastoral community living in the harsh high-altitude ecosystem and uh, for a future economic development of the pastoral products originated in this crucial biocultural region and from these eco-friendly practices. The report in the first part of the study, or or in this part of the report, initial part of the report, the the territory of iAsia and its uniqueness uh, are explored, explaining why its topography strongly impacted the human geography of those areas where the different ethnic groups have to face an economic, social, cultural, political marginalization, especially in terms of development and self-management. Then in the second part of the report, the yak and its fibers, as well as other derived derived products are analyzed to provide greater knowledge of this unique animal and its services to the whole community. Finally, the yak derived products market uh, is explained and a variety of examples of yak wool industry initiative together with some selected cases in other type of animal fibers like alpaca, llama, etc., will be reported to better define the market current situation and the future opportunities. Let me conclude that the ultimate scope of the report aims at building the knowledge basis required to develop projects with long-term and eco-social benefits, integrated business model of yak wool, which helps the Himalayas community to access global markets and their handcraft products. Promoting the use of modern and advanced techniques and machinery in conjunction with traditional methods is an attempt to merge ethnic design and traditions contributing to making yak the right products more competitive on the international market. I would like to, to underline that this study has been conducted by Santiago Caralero Benitez, who is an applied anthropologist specialized in the iAsia region, is the originator of the World Yak Herders Association project and the director of Yurta Association. The document, has been peer-reviewed internally in IFAD and by some major experts in the area of quality fiber production. So why does the report focus on yak fiber? Uh, because uh, the, the yak keeping is an example of sustainable livestock production system. And the yak fiber value chain is also a great example in this regard. Yaks are semi-domesticated animals, not extreme grazers, and their dung provides rural communities with fuel, thus preventing deforestation while enabling 
soil anchoring. That's why IAC can be considered environmental, a, a mean to uh, rebalance uh, the, the environment on the Himalayas uh, uplands. Yak herding is a mean of environmental rebalancing in the Himalayas. And Himalayas rural community benefit from yak bull development uh, because it play a crucial role in reducing the risk that household face when relying on only one income source and in order to reduce the heavy dependency on mountain tourism by combining different uses of their animal with compatible economic strategies, pastoralists obtain more benefit, benefits from alternative use of resources in marginal areas. Yak husbandry, together with agriculture and tourism, provide local people, including young generations, with the economic means to stay and make a living in the mountain. Uh, high mountain ecosystem. So this this study want to underline the importance of the importance of setting up an innovative industry of yak products based on ecological production and alliances with Kashmir, sheepwool, moir, and alpaca industry by diversifying products and experimenting with textile composed of blends of different animal fibers the challenges become more bearable. Undoubtedly, the situation of the herders would improve with increasing the profit derived from the yak wool commercialization, whereas the involved external retailers could still obtain an attractive margin of benefits. These studies, I conclude, focuses on the measures to increase the income of native livestock keeper without altering the social environmental conditions. And Antonia Rotter will be back with more Yakety Yak later in the programme. You can download Following the Thread of the Yak at ifad.org forward slash knowledge. Coming up, we're talking AI in agriculture. This is Farms Food Future. Cordell France is the founder and CEO of Seeker Technologies, a technology startup that builds artificial intelligence products for a variety of industries. Cordell's interest began as a kid, growing up on a farm where his father had autonomous driving software for large tractor machinery. He remembers seeing these big machines steer themselves autonomously, which triggered a keen interest for Cordell in robotics and AI. The seeds were planted at a young age. As for now, Cordell and his team bring artificial intelligence into the field. Seeker combines its proprietary blend of computer vision and machine learning to bring advanced and analytical solutions to agriculture on a mobile platform. I asked Cordell what he sees as the future for AI in agritech. So right now, I think that there is a lot of potential for artificial intelligence to impact uh, agritech in, in a variety of ways. AI in itself is a pretty young field, and there, so it, it, it being used in several industries, uh, I think agriculture is getting the least attention as far as artificial intelligence goes, but it's still relatively new. 
uh, as a as a you know a technical field itself. So I think that there's a lot of room for artificial intelligence to improve in general, but um, there's a lot that we can do to kind of augment farmers' capabilities now to try to give them more uh, real-time information about their crops. And there are a lot of efforts into this, but I think that um, combining that with robotics and and you know trying to give a farmer a lot more uh, information, kind of a bird's eye view about how his entire farm, his entire ecosystem is doing, uh, that he can constantly monitor and check in and be able to provide uh, insight into next year's planting uh, rotation, next year's crops. I think there's a lot of benefits uh, that AI can provide in that fashion. <clears throat> there's a lot going on with uh, drones, like aerial drones and computer vision, being able to uh, give farmers a lot more insight into whether there are uh, there are certain pests that are present or certain diseases present in a crop and I think that will only I think that will only get larger and larger um, there's uh, a lot of potential in in mobile computing as well that you know, as a combination with artificial intelligence uh, a lot of the fields that we were uh, that I was farming in as a kid did not have service uh, did not have internet service or did not have you know LTE access. So there's a need for artificial intelligence to be able to be proficient in being in, in, in providing results and computation without having to check in with the cloud. And so I think that there's going to be a lot more innovation in that regard and in, in, in uh, customers and players actually building AI devices that don't need a cloud connection and that can work uh, without having to make a cloud transaction. Um, and I, I think particularly in that field, it'll it'll go into uh, predictive maintenance for equipment. And there's a lot of, of um, low-hanging fruit in that regard, being able to kind of provide, allow AI to provide uh, predictive maintenance information about how your equipment's performing, where you might want to give attention to uh, with the service truck, the next visit to the field, et cetera. And so uh, there's uh, there's several domains, but those are some of the key aspects that I can see uh, AI going into. So, so how could the work you do help agencies such as us that focus on small scale farming in developing countries and the farmers that we're working with? So a lot of the work that we're working on is uh, all of it's in AI. And what we're trying to do is use computer vision and uh, industry robotics to try to provide a lot more uh, capability for the farmer. So uh, we're working on some systems right now that allow uh, equipment to provide to basically monitor itself and provide predictive maintenance information to the farmer so that uh, it knows when high shocks have been absorbed on certain parts of the implement while traveling through the field, uh, you know, where welds need to be, uh, you know, kind of. Um, beef back up in order to make sure that uh, you know a wing of an implement doesn't fall off, uh, and and try to to really just pr prolong the life of the equipment. So being able to say, uh, you know, how is this implement doing? You know, was it how 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 much stress did it go through last season? You know, what's the prognosis of it moving forward? Uh, what, where do I need to give attention to it, et cetera? That's something we're particularly working on. Um, in, in addition to a separate effort with uh, kind of a, a robotic, a shop robotic arm um, that allows, uh, it, it's kind of a helping hand to someone in the shop that can uh, allow them to hold to hold tools or manipulate tools or uh, just simply as a, an extra hand for uh, someone, for uh, a farmer and agriculture practitioner to uh, help them carry something across the, across the shop. So uh, it, it's a very high stress, uh, very ruggedized robotic arm that uh, you can, 
it, that tracks someone's body through a camera and allows them to uh, manipulate it with uh, just bodily motions if they choose to do so or acts kind of through voice command. So being able to try to kind of speed up, uh, you know, a farmer's downtime and repair time is something that we're trying to uh, really focus on with our AI. And it's something that uh, I noticed as a child growing up on the farm that was a significant driver of, of productivity in our work days on the farm. That was Cordell France from Seeker Technologies, and you can find out more about them at seekertech.com. Up next, we're off to meet IFAD's newest Recipes for Change chef, Rob Ruber. Chef Rob Ruber is an environmentalist, activist and chef from New Jersey in the USA. He's also the newest member of IFAD's Recipes for Change cooking community. Recipes for Change talks about tasty, sustainable dishes from food producers in the developing world. And it also looks at the real-life impacts of climate change on those communities and the real-life solutions to adapt to these changes. Ruba's new D.C.-based restaurant, Oyster Oyster, is attracting a lot of attention, both for its food and exemplary sustainable practices. The chef tells us about the extreme loss of oysters in the Chesapeake Bay in the U.S. and the effect that it's had on biodiversity. He also explains the rather shocking way that serving more oysters at his restaurant is actually a great solution to this loss of biodiversity. But first, I asked him to talk about the path that led him to put environmentalism first at his restaurant. Yeah, I think my approach towards this environmentalism and and being more... Um, mindful of the waste in a restaurant was probably a lot of seeds planted way back in the beginning of my career, even as a a child. And I think my last restaurant was at about in 2016 that started to sprout into real ideas. I was looking at what the waste was and what we needed to do to satisfy our guests with this restaurant that we had already built. And the more I dived into it, I realized how unsustainable and how wasteful we were and how it was very, I don't know, selfish in a way that what I was doing was just more for the ego on the plate rather than what we would be contributing to our community. So at Oyster Oyster, I mean, our main goal has always been to practice sustainability. And one of the most important things to us is kind of sourcing locally from the mid-Atlantic. But that doesn't just mean that we're sustainable by doing that. So we select our farmers carefully um, by their practices, whether it be no tilling, uh, soil enrichment, uh, things along the lines of that, where they're really taking care of the land with stewardship rather than just producing food. Very important to us that they're thinking forward and creating a more sustainable uh, ecosystem for us here in the Mid-Atlantic. You know, it's primarily vegetarian restaurant with the exception of oysters. So um, we're not contributing to any climate change with, uh, you know, beef production or anything along the lines of that. Your restaurant, Oyster Oyster, is near Chesapeake Bay on the east coast of the U.S. And this area has been afflicted by a loss of biodiversity for many years now. So can you tell me what the organisms primarily being affected are and what are the main causes for this environmental degradation? This is, you know, part of our namesake of the restaurant and oysters were this huge uh, part of the economy. They were over farmed for a very long time to the point where now there's only like less than 1% of the oysters that were there at one point, which completely has destroyed the oyster reefs, which are the home to all kinds of life. And it's a full cycle, you know, to worms that live in the, the shells that are then eaten by 
other species of uh, fish than those oysters and fish are also eaten by water birds and and other life that live around there. It's kind of destroyed that. And oysters are amazing filter. They're necessary for the watershed itself. One oyster filters up to 50 gallons of water a day. And now we don't have that. So we have this over-nutrient um, problem because of fertilizers and waste that go into the water, which create these dead zones throughout the Chesapeake. So there's no life basically in some of these parts of the Chesapeake and it creates a growth of too much algae and other problems. Uh, so to still serve oysters after I just said that we've, we've completely wiped out the reef is, is an interesting thing. Um, we use locally farmed oysters, so they're, they're not taking from wild harvest. So every oyster we sell, we work with the Chesapeake Recovery Program. So the shells then get returned back into the waterways so that we can rebuild the wild reefs. So the idea is to not touch what we're rebuilding to create these reefs that will protect us from uh, wave and storm damage as, you know, climate change takes on. Um, and that's the way we're we're balancing that, right? We're working with these farms that are very much dedicated to revitalizing the Chesapeake Bay. And by donating back the oyster shells and working with those programs to to plant uh, more oysters throughout there and rebuild these reefs is, is crucial. So if we're not eating oysters, we don't have oyster shells to then put back because an oyster doesn't grow on a rock. It doesn't grow in the soil. It has to grow on another oyster, which is this very amazing thing and, and makes it kind of a difficult thing to try to reestablish because we need oyster shells to make a new oyster reef because without one oyster, you can't have another. Hmm. Here's your final question. What should consumers do to best protect the health of their local environment? I think at, at home, being mindful of the products you buy, how much waste, what the packaging is. I think shopping at local farmers markets or co-ops or grocers that support local farms as well, or products that are grown with sustainability in mind are very crucial. Um, when it comes to picking places to eat, do a little research, poke around on their Instagram or our other social networks and see you know, are they celebrating their farms, what their practices are, see if there's ethos involved with what they're doing, and then and make your decisions based on that. I absolutely agree. There's so much information out there. There's no excuse not to do a little bit of digging before you buy. Exactly. Like you would, uh, if you were out in the wild and you, you saw a plant or fruit and you picked it up, you would, you would investigate it. You can do the same thing with your restaurant. View it that way. That was Chef Rob Ruba. You can find out more about his work at his Instagram page, at Rob Ruba. You are also welcome to learn more about how rural communities in developing countries are successfully adapting to climate change and, in the process, promoting a sustainable food culture through recipes for change. Our team of over 20 chefs from across the world can be seen and heard at efat.org forward slash recipes for change. Stay tuned to find out what FPIC is and why it is imperative in the context of indigenous communities and development. The UN's Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples' Issues is taking place in New York in April, so we're taking a look at what needs to be taken into account when designing and implementing a program in an indigenous community. Basically, we have to remember that local indigenous communities have their own organization 
traditions, and ways of seeing life that can sometimes collide with the views of people implementing a program. That's why it's crucial for project leaders in the field to seek free, prior and informed consent, or FPIC, with Indigenous people to assure mutual respect and full participation during the project's implementation. Miguel Turan had the chance to speak to Filiberto Penados, an Indigenous people specialist. He explains what FPIC is and why it's important. So the way that I look at it is that really consent, uh, free planning from consent is a kind of consent, if, if we can talk about types of consent. So fundamentally is giving permission for something to happen or agreeing to something. But I think consent is also, we can think of it in terms of being an outcome, of it being a process, uh, of it being a, a duty and right. And really it's a kind of good professional practice. And so we could say that Free parenting from consent cannot be said to have happened unless those things, those conditions have been provided. So, and I think it's also uh, a duty of a proponent to obtain that permission and then the right of the, the beneficiary to request that kind of approach. But ultimately, I think uh, free parenting from consent, it's a matter of good ethical and effective practice. I think whether it is required or not, I think if as, as professionals, if we really want to have a good practice, then it needs to incorporate free parenting from the consent. Um, I can think of, for example, that allow the communities to really uh, have somebody who would look at these documents quite closely, identify the issues so that they could then make a decision about those. So I, I don't know if that kind of answers the question. I think that would be what FPIC would be for me, or free parenting from consent. What benefits does FPIG bring to development projects? If development is about achieving well-being, then there are different conceptions of what well-being is. Now, we cannot assume that a proponent understands what well-being means or fully understands what well-being means for the beneficiary. But also, if we think about uh, development as addressing a particular problem, addressing a particular issue, then we have to recognize also that there are different ways of understanding a given reality. And so I think no matter who it is, the, the proponent wouldn't be able to say this is reality. Uh, and that's what it is. You don't need to hear from other people. And I think so it's important to hear from other, from the beneficiaries to have a better understanding of, of their reality and also of what they see in the future and also provides a space for them to provide knowledge uh, to resolve those issues. Because I think often the assumption is that the, the knowledge of resolving kind of the development challenges are, is coming from outside rather from within. I think it also allows us to move from a, model, a deficit model, from a damaging damage model. We tend to think of beneficiaries as kind of not having assets, as not having knowledge, as being damaged, and therefore they need to be uh, healed or, or somebody needs to do something to or for them. Um, and allows us to move more to one of desire, asset-based. You know, communities have their own desires, their own aspirations. So I think it allows for, uh, the epic process allows for that to come to the fore. So ultimately, I think it would make it more effective, uh, more sustainable, and ultimately achieve what it is that we intend to achieve uh, with the interventions. And lastly, what do you think are the main challenges to seek free, prior, and informed consent on the ground? 
So one, obviously, many times I think officers or project personnel sometimes do not understand what free prior informed consent is. They might be apprehensive. It may seem as a lot more work than what they might be used to. So that certainly, I think, is one of the challenges So the need for better understanding. Also, timeframes. Often, I think, projects are designed without thinking about how much time consent might take. The time sometimes within which projects are framed is a little bit different than perhaps the way that time is understood by indigenous communities. Beyond that, I think, is the very conception of, of development. Uh, we're assuming that, as I said, something is wrong with these communities and we kind of have to solve them. So the conception of development can always be a challenge. I think also for governments sometimes and even you know public servants, the, the understanding of state sovereignty, like uh, sometimes it seems incommensurable with indigenous people's autonomy, you know, that they have their own forms of governance, they have their own knowledge system. And sometimes when you know, indigenous communities say, we want to define our own future, what happens in our lands, then it's the state gets to say exactly what happens. And only the state can you know, determine what happens within the territory. I think we have to move away from that conception. And probably the inability to think beyond private property, because indigenous peoples have collective ownership. And even, for example, I think for, for farmers, right? Um, we're going to only invest in those farmers who have title to their land. And then you have collective land ownership. And so, okay, how does that work now? Or if you're going to provide financing in the forms of loan, oh, but okay, here is you have, and you don't have private property, you have collective property. So it seems kind of like, so what do we do? And I think it does require us to think more creatively to invent kind of uh, alternative mechanisms. That was Filiberto Penados ending that report with Miguel Taran. And you can find out more about IFAD's work with Indigenous peoples at ifad.org. Next, though, Yakety Yak, our yak expert, is back. As promised earlier, Antonia Rotter is back talking yaks. Following the thread of the yak is a recently released report which focuses on the high Asian territories. Antonio told us more. The geographical uh, focus of the report uh, on the high Asia region, uh, region is, is very peculiar. peculiar. And uh, this region is characterized by five uh, important elements. One is a minimum altitude of between 2,000 and 2,400 meters with a maximum up to 8,000 meters. So a a very challenging uh, geographic area. They have a particular climate characterized by very short, mild summer and very long and cold winters. There is a, a, a great concentration of high mountain ranges covered into, uh, converted into massive water storage. They have an ecosystem uh, called actually alpine tundra, which is very, very particular and uh, is is, is an area characterized by high altitude where oxygen scarcity is potentially dangerous for human. This area includes countries like India, Bhutan, Nepal, China, Mongolia, but also areas in Russia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Afghanistan. So a geograph- this is why uh, this, uh, this animal is so important 
and uh, the geographical focus will include many of indigenous native communities which are isolated in a remote area and uh, affected by, by the effects of the climate change. And the yak remain the only income to survive and remain uh, so the main source of livelihood and remain it helps them in remaining in those. Over to you. So, what does the report reveal about the impact of the yak business, as it were, on on young people and women in in these communities? We we really as if uh, we selected to get uh, involved in this uh, potentially very interesting uh, industry because the yak industry is uh, an example uh, of indigenous women business that contribute to their empowerment. Almost all yak wool production is in the end of indigenous female weavers and pastoralists who collect the raw material. Its promotion and development could positively impact uh, rural people, especially with regard to women empowerment. And uh, the, the yak wool industry could be a lever, a lever, a significant lever to empower women in Asia and region in terms of Youth, uh, young people, as you know, are uh, migrating, are leaving the mountain area. But the aspect linked to developing the commercial part of, of this business will uh, keep them uh, together with, uh, as I mentioned before, with tourism, will keep them uh, in, in the mountain area, providing them with uh, a, 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 an interesting uh, income and, uh, you know, a uh, young, young person like to really get involved into uh, modern and business-oriented uh, activity. So through a potential project that could stem out of uh, the discussion uh, we will have in the launching event, uh, we, we think that we can uh, introduce innovative technology for the rangeland management, innovative technology for the transformation of, uh, of uh, yak fiber and uh, assist this pastoral community to grow in order to enter the international market. Antonio Rotta there. You can download following the thread of the yak at ifad.org forward slash knowledge. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 30. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifa.org forward slash podcast. Next month, we will be focusing on decent work and fair livelihoods in agriculture. Remember, as always, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. We'll be back at the end of April with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Ian Smith, and the team here at EFAD, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.